Welcome to the Australian Chamber Orchestra podcast. I'm Francis Merson, and the music we're hearing now is from Boccherini's Night Music from the Streets of Madrid. Just one of many gems featured in the ACO's latest concert program, Baroque Revelry, a journey from the court of Louis XIV in Versailles to the canals of Venice, from intimate music for solo instruments to opulent opera theatres, from the depths of hell to celestial heights and everything in between. And so this concert series is all about the Baroque. But what exactly is the Baroque in music anyway? Well, let's start with the word itself. The word Baroque was imported into English from French in the 1700s and came in turn from the original Portuguese word Barocco, which means irregularly shaped, and it was a term that was usually applied to pearls. By the mid-19th century, art critics and historians had adopted the term Baroque as a pejorative word to ridicule the art of the post-Renaissance, which is of course known for its highly ornate and sometimes overblown levels of detail. So think of the Palace of Versailles or St. Peter's in Rome. The term Baroque was also applied to music of the same period, so the period from around 1600 to 1750. In music, the Baroque period is preceded by the Renaissance, so if you think of Thomas Tallis and Josquin des Prés, and it's succeeded by the Classical period, the age of Mozart and Haydn. And the idea of strangely shaped pearls is perhaps an apt one for describing this program, as it's the music that doesn't fit the mould, that can really convey the opulence, weirdness, and flair for the theatrical that we find so irresistible about the Baroque. And so on this podcast, I'll take you on a whirlwind tour through this opulent, weird Baroque period and explore the history behind some of the most interesting works on the Australian Chamber Orchestra program. And we're also going to listen to some examples of how this history plays out in the music. Now, the Baroque is perhaps best known for its sacred music, those grand oratorios like the Messiah and St. Matthew Passion. Our program takes another angle exploring the secular, the bawdy, and the sometimes diabolical aspects of Baroque music. And with all that religiosity around, it's hardly surprising that there was a bit of a devilish backlash in the Baroque period. And like many of the best ideas, the inspiration for Giuseppe Tartini's Devil's Trill violin sonata is said to have come to him in a dream. So Tartini was a Venetian violinist and composer, born in 1692, and was actually one of the first musicians to have owned a Stradivarius violin. According to his own account of his dream, I dreamt I had made a pact with the devil for my soul. I gave him my violin to see if he could play. How great was my astonishment on hearing a sonata so wonderful and so beautiful, played with such great art and intelligence as I had never even conceived in my boldest flights of fantasy. And as soon as Tartini awoke, the story goes, he desperately attempted to transcribe the sonata the devil had played to him in this kind of Faustian reverie. Apparently, the difference in quality between what he wrote and what he had heard in his dream was so discouraging that he considered putting an end to his musical career. But the result was the devil's trill sonata in G minor, which pushes violin technique to the most fiendishly difficult extremes, using double-stop trills, so ornamentation on multiple strings of the violin at the same time. 
So let's have a listen to the condenser of the last movement, where it really gets devilishly difficult. Trill Sonata undoubtedly contributed to this image of the diabolically gifted violinist, a tradition which persisted into the 19th century with celebrity virtuoso Niccolò Paganini, who had supposedly sold his soul to the devil in exchange for his incredible virtuosity. And this myth also continued into the 20th century, uh, with the case of blues guitarist Robert Johnson, who supposedly made the same deal at a crossroads in rural Mississippi. While the violin was at the heart of Baroque music, they certainly didn't have all the fun. A major figure in the late Baroque and the burgeoning classical period was the Italian composer and cellist Luigi Boccherini. Boccherini had played cello in the orchestra for the premiere of Gluck's ballet Don Juan, and this music made a strong impression on Boccherini. So much so that 10 years later, in 1771, he attempted to transfer the Don Juan myth from the stage to instrumental music when he composed his symphonia in D minor, known as La Casa del Diavolo, the House of the Devil. In the dramatically charged final movement, we can hear the descent of the infamous seducer to hell, which is transmitted musically in rapid-fire descending D minor passages. Let's have a listen. the same device of descending D minor passages in a later treatment of the Don Juan legend, less than 20 years later in fact, as Mozart's Don Giovanni is also dragged down to hell. Another composer whose music straddled the shift from the late Baroque towards the Enlightenment and a more classical aesthetic was Johann Sebastian Bach's most famous son, Carl Philipp Emanuel. To the father's innate sense of dramatic build-up heard in many a Baroque masterpiece, Carl Philipp added elements of surprise and fantasy as part of what was called the Empfindsamkeit movement, from a German word meaning sentiment or sensitivity. The movement espoused the primacy of emotion, an emotional contrast in music. And we have a wonderful example of this in his 1753 cello concerto in A major, where the central slow movement offers an achingly beautiful adagio lament with soaring cello lines. 
and we could hear the soloist enter into weeping dialogue with the muted strings of the rest of the ensemble. And so Carl Philipp Emanuel's music is really on the cusp of classicism, and in his autobiography he actually wrote of this transition. Who is not aware of that moment when, so to speak, a new period commenced for music in general, as a result of which the art of music rises to new heights. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. There's still plenty to explore back in the 1600s, and we mustn't miss the work of Heinrich Ignaz Franz von Bieber, yet another composer-violinist of which there was no shortage in the 1600s. Bieber flourished as a court musician and Kapellmeister in Salzburg, the city that almost 100 years later would be home to the Mozarts, and Bieber was obsessed with the unusual techniques and special effects that he could create with the violin. In his Sonata Violino Solo Representativa, his representative violin sonata, composed in 1669, each section of the work represents a musical portrait of an animal until an entire menagerie is present. Birds are out in full force with the nightingale, cuckoo, rooster, hen and quail all depicted. And even the humble frog has its moment of glory in the form of a repeated semitone motif played in double stops, so holding down uh, fingers on two strings of the violin at the same time. Let's have a listen. outdone, a cat chimes in later in the same piece. See if you can recognize some of the other animals that make an appearance when you listen to other sections of this work in concert. And now, it wasn't only animals that Baroque composers relished bringing to life in music, but all forms of nature, as we hear in Jean-Philippe Rameau's opera Les Boriades. Rameau was arguably France's greatest 18th century composer of opera, with a keen musical sense of drama and movement that bubbles in all his music for the stage. The lyric tragedy Les Boriades was his final work, written a year before his death in 1764, and he actually never saw it performed in his lifetime. The theory goes that the rehearsals were abandoned because the music was so phenomenally difficult, and so it wasn't heard on stage until two centuries had passed. 
And it's certainly a turbulent score. Much of the orchestral writing depicts storms, tempests and whirlwinds as it centres on the descendants of Boreas, god of the north wind. In the instrumental extract on our program, we hear a wind machine generating a whirling effect as energetic, uprushing flutes and frenzied scales in the string section make it sound as though the orchestra is literally on the verge of being blown away. countryman and colleague Jean Ferry Rebel also drew inspiration from elemental forces in his orchestral ballet Les Elements, The Elements. Written in 1737, it was the final work penned by Rebel, and he clearly meant to push harmonic and conceptual boundaries, as if he had nothing to lose late in life and could experiment to his heart's content. And with a name like Rebel, what could we really expect? Throughout the work, we find musical depictions of, of course, earth, air, fire, and water, but it's in the prologue, entitled Chaos, that Robert really lets loose, giving us the very first cluster in musical history. Now, I know the word cluster has somewhat sinister connotations today, but in music, a cluster is a block of adjacent notes that don't go together, all played at once. Now, this is a technique that's usually associated with the 20th century avant-garde, and I think you'll hear how avant-garde it sounds when we listen to an example in a second. In this particular case, Rebel takes every note of the D minor scale and has the orchestra play them repeatedly all at once. So here's what the D minor scale sounds like when the notes are played separately. But how does that sound? when it's all smashed together. Let's have a listen. listeners even today, and so you can imagine how it would have sounded for audiences back in 1737. And the fact that these are precisely seven notes played together is perhaps no accident, as Rebel in this movement proceeds to paint a musical picture of the seven days of creation, divided into seven separate parts, all full of these slow, excruciating dissonances and tense tremolos in the strings. And we only need to compare it to Franz Joseph Haydn's classical depiction of the creation of the universe some 60 years later, which honestly sounds pretty staid in comparison, to understand just how innovative Jean-Ferry Rebel's most famous work was. Now, 
Rebel, Rameau, some pretty big names of the Baroque, alongside the acknowledged superstars such as Bach and Handel. But recent historians of the period have also discovered other works that may have been forgotten along the way, particularly works by women, which were often not given a great deal of attention. This was certainly the case for Isabella Leonarda, who was born just over 400 years ago, and was a cloistered nun who composed more than 200 works in the seclusion of an Ursuline convent not far from Milan. Her 12 sonatas for two violins are believed to be the first sonatas ever published by a woman. Isabella was born into a noble family, entering the convent at the age of 16, and like Hildegard von Bingen centuries before her, she rose in the ranks to become Mother Superior, continuing to compose and teach music in a protected environment, although she claimed to dedicate herself to composition only in the allotted time for rest. Admiration for her talents extended well beyond the convent walls. After her death, the French music theorist Sébastien de Brossard came into possession of several of her works. According to him, the works were so beautiful, gracious, so brilliant, and at the same time so wise, that my regret is not having them all. Another Baroque female composer, Barbara Strozzi, who was born in Venice in 1619. It was her librettist father, who had worked with Monteverdi, who was responsible for giving her the education she needed to produce her songs and arias. Her father may also have given the young Strozzi a remarkable facility for word painting in her vocal works, some of which bear her own lyrics. We have two of her arias on the program. Amor Dormiglione translates to sleepyhead Cupid, and in this rather exuberant aria, the heroine urges Cupid to wake up and get back to work shooting arrows of love. Che si può fare, meanwhile, is a plaintive song written over a ground bass, or a lament bass, a repeated descending four-note motif, over which a melody may be elaborated. This repetition of the bass line highlights the increasing restlessness of the singer, as she asks herself continually, what can I do? What can I say? And ponders her misfortune, impatiently waiting for a sign from the heavens. baseline do 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 so this little earworm was popularized in the baroque period it turns up in the works of monteverdi in particular but its popularity has scarcely waned since and carries right through to our times indeed there's a very famous 20th century piece of music that is also a tale of unhappy love and it's built around exactly the same ground bass 
pattern, over which the soloist improvises more freely. Key difference in this work is that the gender roles are reversed. It is the man who is doing the lamenting. Let's see if you can hear any similarities. I guess if you say so, I'll have to pack my things and go. That's right, hit the road, Jack. And don't you come back no more, no more, no more, no more. Hit the road, Jack. And don't you come back no more. And so that's just another example of how the music of the 20th century was informed by some of the technical innovations of the Baroque period. And perhaps no musical genre is more representative of Baroque innovation than opera. And one of the greatest masters of the 1700s in both Italian and English was George Frederick Handel. Handel wrote with the same florid abundance of style, whether he was supplying vocal pyrotechnics for singers in his numerous operas and oratorios, or showing off the virtuosity of instrumentalists in his instrumental works. And judging by Handel's many stormy feuds with the great divas and castrati of the day, we can assume he probably preferred to deal with instrumentalists. In any case, we can hear that there is little distinction between vocal and instrumental writing in the aria Myself I Shall Adore. It's from the opera Semele, written just a year after the Messiah in 1743. And in this aria, Jupiter's lover Semele gazes at her own reflection, marvelling at her beauty. And what's really interesting is how this is depicted in music. And so what we hear are the instruments reflecting the melodic line sung by the soprano as though the instruments are the reflection of the mirror in which she admires herself. While this aria represents, of course, a moment of quite narcissistic levity, some of the most exquisitely tragic songs have also come to us from Baroque England, perhaps none more poignant than Flow My Tears by the Elizabethan composer John Dowland. Dowland was a gifted lutenist and composed some of the most accomplished virtuoso music for his instrument, but also created an English type of lute song, or air, with vocal accompaniment. His most famous piece is Flow My Tears, which dates from the late 1500s and for which Dowland wrote both the music and the text. It became the biggest hit of 17th century England, and the text, which is worthy of Shakespeare himself, or perhaps even Nick Cave, evokes darkness, exile, grief and despair. The opening stanza reads as follows. Flow my tears, fall from your springs. Exiled forever, let me mourn, where night's black bird her sad infamy sings, there let me live forlorn. And so what did Dowland have to be so glum about? He was one of the most esteemed musicians in Europe, 
but seems to have been systematically overlooked for court positions in his own country, perhaps in part due to his conversion to Catholicism in Protestant England. But the Baroque wasn't all tears and heartache, there was the occasional toilet humour as well. Henry Purcell's Pox on You for a Fop is a bawdy ditty that wasn't really intended to be passed down through the centuries. It was written for domestic performance and deals with much earthier themes than his more renowned arias such as Dido's Lament. A fop in Purcell's day was a bit of a rake, a fashionable man of questionable morals, and here Purcell warns the listener that overindulgence at the dinner table results in excessive belching and farting. Any listeners of a sensitive disposition are warned that this contains some rather realistic sound effects. Pox on you! Pox on you! Pox on you! For a fall! Your stomach's too queasy! Cannot I belch? Cannot I belch? And fart you coxcomb to ease me! What if I let fly in your face and shall please ye? And sadly, it seems that Purcell also met a less than dignified end when his wife locked him out in the cold after a raucous night at the pub. He died soon after. As far as bawdy Baroque jokes go, the English seem to be the masters of the genre. And perhaps Thomas Morley takes the cake with a song composed in 1600 entitled Will You Buy a Fine Dog? In this ribald piece, Morley puts his delicately honed madrigal writing skills to use with elaborate word painting on the word dildo. Will you buy a fine dog with a hole in his hand with a dildo with a dildo dildo with a dildo 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 Muffs, cuffs, free bottles and fine sister's bread with a dildo with a dildo dildo with a dildo dildo And in case you're wondering if in the Baroque period the word dildo had some different meaning, well, it didn't. This really is a song about a dildo. So the wonders of Baroque music go well beyond the concert halls and banquets, extending into the boudoir, but also out into the streets. Boccherini's night music of the streets of Madrid, which we heard at the opening of this podcast, was a string quartet composed in 1780, and it captures all the bustling life of a balmy evening out on the town, complete with the violins strumming their strings like guitars, accompanied by a folk melody in the cello. most likely Vivaldi's Four Seasons or Packable's canon that come to mind. But if we return to the original meaning of Baroque, derived from those Barocco misshapen pearls, 
we see that the Baroque period shows an extraordinary proliferation of unique musical offerings that don't seem to fit established norms. And this is in stark contrast with the subsequent classical period with its very strict rules of harmony and structure. To love the Baroque is to love its extraordinary variety. Spanning more than 150 years across several countries in Europe, the Baroque is a vast and wonderfully varied universe, and we've barely scratched the surface here in this podcast. It's also worth mentioning as a closing point that the Portuguese word barocco in turn comes from the original Latin veruca, meaning wart. And so I hope you've enjoyed our Baroque journey, warts and all. The Australian Chamber Orchestra's Baroque Revelry program is in concert halls in June, COVID restrictions permitting, and also available from December 1st as an ACO studio cast on www.aco.com.au. Many thanks to Melissa Lesney for help in researching and writing this podcast. I'm Francis Merson. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.